Welcome to another episode of Nipe Story. It's a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short stories from Kenya and occasionally across the continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mochiro. On this episode, we are featuring Christino Deaths When Mountains Meet. Chapter 1 Ayira Jaber Jaula, the beautiful one, is deceptive. There is something to be said about walking out of real life into a mortuary on a weekday afternoon to find out whether or not it is true that your lover has died. Until this moment, Ayira had not realized what a fickle thing mortality is. The realization, like the strange weather on this day, pressed into her body, turning her feet into a pair of concrete hooves. Here she was, standing in the middle of the Ngong Road roundabout, staring at the city mortuary. The phone call she had received the day before had made a home inside her subconscious mind. There was no doubt it would remain there, tormenting her for a long time. Do you know a man named Otwar? That thing that happens to people when they realize that their world is just three sentences away from imploding. Her knees had liquefied and her tongue had gelled into a rock. From afar, she could still hear the sound from her computer screen. With images from the YouTube channel, she had just been amusing herself with a few minutes before that phone call, blurring into an abstract picture. There was an accident last night on Mombasa Road. Sentence one. Patrick was one of the people who was involved. Sentence two. His body was taken to city mortuary. Sentence three. There is something tragic about the existence of so much life right outside a tiny building housing the bodies of people whose essence has been snuffed out. Something offensive about how traffic remains unbothered and how university students stroll by, so vibrantly filling the air with that laughter that hasn't yet met KRA. That light, brazen, wonderful laughter mixed with passionate conversations that won't matter in a decade. Unknown faces throng the roundabout, each with their own ambition. A woman with a suitcase and a baby on her back rushing towards a matatu stop. Three men in ill-fitting suits engaged in a heated debate about politics, blissfully unaware of the hooting matatus raging past them. Con men stopping innocent people to ask for bus fare, claiming that they had been robbed or that they were new to the city and needed some help. How is it that at the doorstep of death, life is so obscenely displayed in this massive sea of madness, mayhem, hopes and dreams all layered in sweat and humidity. Your number was one of the last locks on his call locks. Are you his wife? Her tongue could not move. Her mouth was dry. She was struggling for air. Hello? Are you there? I'm, I'm here. Her voice was something foreign and strangled. Are you his wife? I, uh, yes. The caller, a policeman, was being rushed off the phone. She didn't even get his name. Later that evening, sitting in the middle of her bathroom floor with a bottle of tequila, an odd thought crossed her mind. Hmm, was it mean to rename him the Grim Ripper in true caller? Would people find that funny or frightening? At this moment, staring at the mortuary from across the road, all she could think about was the last phone call that Officer Grim Ripper was referring to and the anguish in both their voices. Ayira, if you leave me, I will kill myself. 
Patrick had shouted into the phone, and even though she had believed him, she had said, I wish you would, Patrick. It started to rain. A part of her found this wickedly amusing. Instead of running and covering her weave like the woman ahead of her, she did not move. She couldn't move. She was thinking about the first time she met Patrick Odwar. It was raining on that day, too. She started to laugh, a manic sound that turned heads her way. <laughs> but this was Nairobi, where strange things happen. Nothing strange about a woman laughing in the rain while staring across the road at the old school-structured mortuary. People kept walking. Tomboya Street is where sanity goes to die. He said that to her the first time they met. Inside of all things, an elevator going down in a shopping mall. She had a thing against elevators. To her, they felt like moving coffins. Death was a fear she carried inside her ever since she lost her brother. She had put her phone away to stare blankly at the stranger, her mind preoccupied by thoughts of meetings and presentations and other personal matters. Your phone call. He had said, smiling, when the silence between them had turned into an awkward chasm. The smile unleashed a disarming set of dimples. Um, they, they asked you to meet them on Tomboya Street. She had wanted to be irritated by him, but the dimples. Oh, that, no. <laughs> it's a delivery. The elevator had stopped. They both stepped outside and started walking in the same direction. I assure you I'm uh, not stalking you, although I <laughs> would not mind doing that given your beauty. <laughs> she had wanted to be impressed by that pickup line, but her brain had respectfully declined. I'm heading to the bank. What a coincidence, he had quipped, so am I. <laughs> uh, then there had been more silence between them. I used to hate the idea of banking halls inside uh, shopping malls until I realized I could shop, eat and transact in one afternoon. He cheerfully broke the silence. She had been wondering why the distance to the mall had suddenly become longer. At the door to the bank, he blurted out, oh, Would you mind having coffee with me after you're done? And uh, maybe tell me more uh, about yourself. I'm not much of a coffee drinker. Tea? No, thank you. Uh, so uh, will I see you again? Perhaps when mountains meet? She had used her mother's tone when saying that. After all, they were her mother's words, delivered in that low intonation that leaves the recipient confused as to whether they were said in jest or in finality. Before he had thought of a way to counter her words, she had slid into the customer service chair, leaving no room for rejoinders. But he was not a man who gave up easily. He was waiting outside the bank when she walked out. It's raining, you know, and you don't have an umbrella. <laughs> Now what kind of a gentleman would I be if I let you get your hair wet? <laughs> she had smiled, shaking her head. You don't give up, do you? Some people shine so bright that to give them up is to give despair a home. It was the words that did it, in addition to the dimples. She had a weakness for men who could play with words. At least, tell me your name, he had said, crossing one muscular arm over the other. Ayira. My God, he said, clutching his chest. Even your name is submission. Submission to what? <laughs> she was laughing now, sold to his charm. A submission to beauty, of course. 
that cheesiness, the delivery. How was she to resist his charm? Patrick Odwar was the kind of man who had a favorite waiter in every restaurant he patronized. When he walked into a room, everything stopped and waited for him. His charm was as enchanting as it was liberating. People adored him. Standing there in the rain, Ayira's laughter reached the point of hysteria. Her white blouse was clinging to her body. Rain mingled with sweat. She grabbed both her knees as her body rocked back and forth in laughter. <laughs> Perhaps Patrick was wrong. The place where sanity truly goes to die must be on Bagathi Way. Inside the morgue, her brain was gathering more reasons for future insomnia. She tried not to scream. The smell was overwhelming. Her eyes were stinging from the putrefied air of death and from refusing to blink. The jaded attendant startled her from her deep thoughts. He told her in a monotone. Bodies had been stacked on top of the cold cement slabs with metallic covers like pieces of forgotten wood. The injustice, the indiscrimination, the indignity of death was making its presence loudly known to Ayira. The smell, the rotting flesh. Then she saw it. Patrick's polo shirt, the one she had watched him wear the morning before his accident. The one she had bought for him when her love was enough to quieten his demons. No longer soft baby blue. The polo shirt was now a grotesque fabric blackened by blood gone cold. Patrick's feet were bare, his face non-existent. Something similar to a rattle began to happen in her insides, releasing a bitter wave that hurled itself straight up her throat and out of her mouth without warning. Her white blouse became an unfortunate victim of her surroundings. The attendant's monotone changed into an angry bark. Where, mama? A stranger's voice interrupted them, filled with shock and horror. Who is this woman? What is she doing with my son? That is all she remembered before she hit the filthy floor, and then blissful darkness. Chapter 2 Benta Aluru Oidoyath Nithindwa The quail has climbed a tree, my people. The blood on the white blouse could not come out. She had been struggling to clean the stain for the last 20 minutes. Benta had long learned that the best thing to do was to pretend that she always believed her madame. She therefore did not ask questions when madame said the thing on her white blouse was just a little splash of red wine. Benta liked her job there. It was easy when the man was not around. It was almost as if madame had long forgotten that Benta slept under the same roof where her man practiced his boxing skills on his woman's lithe body. Into the washing machine the blouse went, and when it started to spin, so did Benta's mind. Back into another time and another woman whose body bore the bruises of a suffocating marriage. Eight months into her new life in the city, and the thing that Benta missed most about home were the dark and quiet nights. What Madame did not know was that at night, Benta never slept on the bed with the brand new mattresses and beddings in her small bedroom near the kitchen. 
She always waited until the house was as still as Nairobi could possibly get, and then she would spread a lesso on the tiled floor and lie on it. At least from the floor, the lights from outside were usually less irritating, but still they were always there. And once her eyes had adjusted to the dim light, she could see everything clearly, and she hated it. There was always something making noise. A car leaving the estate, another car coming in, a hoot, then a banging boot. Sometimes there would be keys rattling on the door in the apartment next door. Mara, there would be glasses clinking in the sink in the apartment above theirs. Other times, the poor-looking dog would be yapping from the floor below theirs. Sometimes it would be a newborn baby crying, or a car alarm, or other dogs far away joining the dog song that happened some nights. Ever-present were the matatu horns on the highway. Never just one toot, but a series of blasts, as if the minibus manufacturers signed an unwritten treaty with the drivers to ensure that their existence remained unignored in the thick of the city's cacophonies. But the most unnerving, most unforgettable sounds were the whimpering sounds of Madame, just a few doors away. For Benta, Nairobi is loud during the day, but deafening at night. Benta only slept on her brand new shiny bed when Madame and her man left for work. She would dream of waking up back home. She dreamt of finding her mother dead on the floor of their one-room shack in the village. She would dream that her aunt was burning her face with a hot charcoal iron. She would weep bitterly in her sleep. The quietness back home was absolute. It allowed her to dream and to grieve. She dreamt about moving away from her mother's memory and her aunt's quarrelsome nature. An aunt who only needed to realize that Benta was still breathing for her to fly into a screeching rage. Benta missed the scent of renewal which is what happens when you live in a village that has two market days in a week and the remaining days are spent in a lazy slumber, where birds chirp as if they know secrets that humans can only dream about, where the scent of fertilizer marries with the smell of soil when it rains, making every strand of hair inside the nose to rise and pay attention. In her hands there was a towel, freshly removed from the dryer. In its creases, her aunt's face loomed, towering over her ten-year-old face as she knelt over the biggest pile of clothes. Do you think food is free here? Do you think food is free? Her aunt would shriek at her. This memory tightens her chest. Why couldn't her aunt ever speak normally? All Benta remembered was her shrieking voice, her eyes bulging, chest heaving, breasts threatening to jump out of her tight blouse, Lesso wrapped around a non-existent waistline and a hail of insults, always ready to be launched at her as the aunt accused her of stealing food from her children's mouths. Benta wondered what could be said about missing a place that birthed and broke you before you even knew who you really were. The place that taught you that you were nothing to no one, and wished you would disappear forever. Itimango, Benta was startled back to the present by Madame's voice. It was not a harsh voice. No, no, it wasn't. It was like a feather falling onto the tiled floor. Yet its softness caused Benta's heart to beat faster, just as her aunt's voice did some time in the past. Madame's voice that hid many secrets. It was a soothing scream for help. I asked what you were doing, Madame repeated, although she didn't look as though she was interested in hearing the answer to her question. 
She confused Benta so much with the way she switched from Dolo to English. It seemed as if whenever Madame spoke in their native language, her spirit felt betrayed and was urging her to repeat the same thing in English to prove that indeed the words came from her. But to Benta, the betrayed party was always her own ears. Whenever Madame spoke Dolo, it was with a tongue that had spent many seasons far away from the rose of sugarcane in the heart of Muhoroni, arguing in English, smiling in English, dreaming in English. It was a hesitant tongue that twisted the sounds of her beautiful language into a crooked creature and gave the words a feeling as foreign as the hair extensions on her head. She had told Madame over and over again that she made it to Form 1 and that she had been top of her class and could therefore understand English perfectly. But still, Madame insisted on talking to her in the law. And because Benta was a quick study, she knew that this was one of the things her boss wanted her to pretend to be deaf and blind to, like many other happenings in her house. I am washing the clothes, Madame, Benta replied. Should I bring you breakfast? It was a Saturday. When there was peace in the house, breakfast was always served in the bedroom on Saturday. Benta was praying that there was peace because of what she wanted to discuss with her boss. You need to remove whatever you're washing because it's been in the washing machine for some time. Madame replied, not really looking at Benta. When she realized that Benta's eyes were nervously transfixed on her, Ayira moved from the doorway into the house towards the cupboard where the utensils were stored. She walked like a leaf that was half attached to a branch in the pouring rain. This made Benta feel as though her heart was a lemon going through a squeezer or whatever that white gadget Madame forced her to use to squeeze lemons was called. Madame, the blouse from yesterday has refused to get clean. I don't blame it. I would refuse to get clean too if I had the day it had. Benta wondered whether Madame had finally killed her mad boyfriend. Her voice, her eyes, everything was so strange. But Benta was somehow relieved. She vowed to herself never to tell anyone Madame's secret. Then she wondered why she was so ready to keep such a secret for her boss. Madame's back was turned as she poured herself a cup of freshly brewed coffee, another lesson Benta had quickly learned upon her arrival in the city. They both stood in that kitchen, with the sounds of suburban Nairobi pressing at the windows for what felt like eternity. Ayira was staring into her coffee as if she was looking for answers to some secrets, the ones the birds from her home chirped about. In that deathly silence, it felt as though were the cup to drop from Madame's hand, so would her saneness. And Benta, you need to stop calling me madame, or I will fire you. We're almost the same age. Yes, ma... <laughs> oh, <laughs> it doesn't matter, Benta. Madame, I must go. Benta blurted out, unable to find a better way to broach what was on her mind. What do you mean, go? An odd calm covered her voice. Screeching anger Benta had braced herself for. I have children. Something has happened. You, you, you have children? More than one? Why didn't you tell me this before? It is the softness of her voice that made Benta's own voice crack like cassava crisps against a hungry set of teeth. Moss, madame. Yawa. Her mind frantically searched for the best words and finally found solace in an old proverb. Atonga mayot e mayombo gokoth. Ayura looked up for the first time and tears flooded her eyes, drowning the brown and white canvas. What a beautiful phrase, she whispered, and repeated it to herself. Atonga mayot, 
Mayombo Kokos. Indeed, it is only with a light basket that one escapes the rain. And then she fell, like a broken feather to the floor. Her favorite cup, the one with a picture of a cat in it, landed first and spilled its dark contents all over her flowered pajamas. But Benta didn't hear the cup crashing. The sound was swallowed up by the wailing that came from deep within her boss. <coughs> On the day Benta was born, her mother had decided that it was time for both of them to meet their maker. It was a well-thought-out decision. She'd wake up as usual, tend to her wounds, both internal and external, and take her jerry can down to the deepest part of the river where no one went to fetch water from. Once there, she would leave the jerry can out in the open, no need for neatness when you're at the doorstep of death, and dive into the river. But God had other plans, and so, on that beaten path where two rows of half-grown sugarcane stalks whispered to each other, her water broke. It was a month too soon. Benta remembered this story only too well. It was the soundtrack to her entire childhood. She thought about her birth and the time when her mother attempted suicide and succeeded. She wondered what purpose God had for keeping her alive on this wretched earth. Benta's father had left them when she was a year old to work as a driver in Sudan and had never returned. Her mother had made ends meet by doing menial labor for people around the village. Benta and her mother lived in a small room one of the units in a semi-permanent row of rooms with a shared latrine and a roofless structure for a bathroom. Benta's favorite part of the day was early evening, after school, at the time when cows would return home from grazing. On Saturdays and during school holidays, she accompanied her mother to Mr. Ogwedi's farm, where her mother worked. Julius Ogwedi was indeed a blessed man with a thriving farm that had a little stream running through it, he paid her mother the most money for the least amount of work. Sometimes Benta would hide inside his granaries for hours and no one would notice. When it was time to go home, Benta would cry. Mr. Ogwevi would insist they stay for the night, as there was plenty of room in his house. But Benta's mother was very proud, even in their poverty. She always refused, and he would send them off with enough food for a few days. Mr. Ogwevi's wife, Priscilla, was the most beautiful person in Benta's world. Her neck was like a stalk of bamboo. She walked as if she was afraid to hurt the ground, and everything she said sounded like a song. Over the school holidays, when Mr. Ogwedi brought his family to the farm, Benta would hide in the shadows, watching Priscilla tickle her daughter, just two years older than Benta, with a sweet laugh, or admonishing her son with so much love. She would listen to her giving instructions to the workers as if they were her clansmen, and she would play with the dogs as if they were her children. And before they went back to the city, there would be clothes for Benta from her daughter. Their kindness gave Benta an ache. She wanted to be loved that way. And as she lay on their bamboo mat in the one-roomed shack, she counted the hours until the time she would be back on Mr. Ogwedi's farm. But then she turned ten and her mother, unable to cope with what no one understood then as debilitating depression, hung herself, leaving her daughter the burden of discovering her dead body in their house. It was on the last day of the school term. 
the local pastor took Benta in and enrolled her in a boarding school. Benta wept every night for an entire term, mostly because she missed going to Mr. Ogwethi's farm. She never understood the other girls' complaints about food, the dormitories, and how much they were missing home. The school exposed her to the best food she had ever eaten and the safest environment she had ever known. But the tide turned against her once again, when her benefactor passed away, and the nightmare that was living in Kisumu with her paternal aunt began. Aunt Rose, a P1 teacher, was married to a kind, soft-spoken carpenter called Okir, and together they had four children. Okir pitied her. Benta had become timid and withdrawn, and Okir often spoke to her at length. But his kindness unearthed a strange jealousy from Rose. It soon became Benta's responsibility to cook, clean, and tend to her cousins. She was withdrawn from school because Rose claimed it was too expensive. And whenever Okir broached the subject of finding her another school, Rose, amid her screaming tirades, would accuse him of looking for a second wife in her niece. He eventually realized that it was safer and more peaceful for everyone if he never raised the issue again. Later, Rose began a hand-washing laundry business, and Benta became the laundry girl. But to her aunt, Benta never did anything right. She never washed fast enough or clean enough. She was always using too much soap or too much water. The clothes were never hung the right way at the right time. There was always something to scream about. And Rose could scream. Her children pitied Benta, but said nothing, lest the rage was turned on them. After everyone was asleep, though, they would take turns to sneak her food in the sitting room where she slept, because their mother always made sure her portions were small to the point of starvation. The choice to run away had been an easy one for Benta. No planning went into it. One day, while at the Kisumu main bus park, as she was shopping for food, she happened to meet a bus driver who had kind eyes. He greeted her politely and said he had seen her around. He offered to pay for her catfish. She refused because the food was meant for her aunt and she probably wasn't going to be allowed to eat the fish. They interacted a few more times after that. She found herself looking forward to running into him and listening to him speaking about general life matters. He was a welcome change from her turbulent world. One day, he mentioned that he would be away for a few weeks because he was taking up a better job on a different route. The idea of not seeing him made her panic. Take me with you, she blurted out before hopping into his bus, the food she had purchased still in her basket. That is the thing about kindness. After a lifetime of being starved of it, Benta gave in wholeheartedly and never looked back. She did not care that she hardly knew this man or where he would take her. Hers became a simple life thereafter. He was kind to her and she asked little of him. He often traveled for work away from home, but he always came to see her each week. Their time together was one of quiet companionship that soothed her old wounds. Together they had two children in quick succession. It was like Ayira was staring at the obituary of her lover from outer space. There was Patrick, having been married six years to a brilliant woman who worked for the government, and there was their only child, robbed of a loving father. Next were his parents, respectable members of the community, then his workmates, 
names and places that did not remind her of any conversation she had ever had with him. It was as though a stranger was wearing Patrick's face, with his smile and those deceptive dimples. She remembered waking up from unconsciousness a week earlier to find that what she thought was a horrible nightmare was actually real. Patrick was lying dead on a cold morgue table, among other unnamed dead people. His mother was distraught and angry, his wife teary and angrier. I, I, I work with him. We were close friends. I'm, I'm just in shock because I was supposed to travel with him in the same car, but the plans were changed at the, at the last minute. Seemed like an easier explanation then. I shared a bed with him for almost two years, and he used to beat me. If they had not believed a word she had said, then they had done an excellent job of concealing it. Ayira knew that the alternative would be too much for them to handle, given the situation they were in. So they had ignored the woman who was too wrought with grief to have been just a colleague. She excused herself shortly after saying that she wanted to give them some privacy. Walking home in a haze, trying to figure out how she had been so blind, not knowing at which point all her senses had become dulled by the deterioration of their relationship, how the single slap the first time had been followed by a tearful apology and endless gifts thereafter. But then the apologies had quickly evolved into reversed accusations against her. Then these had evolved into hard fists, harder kicks. How was it possible? to imagine you knew everything about someone when you had barely scratched the surface. Her mind drifted back to the first incident. It was over a forgotten booking for their weekend getaway. I reminded you almost six times. Ayira, I had a lot on my mind. Why do you always act like your things are more important than mine, Patrick? I never said that. You're never here. What is the point of us moving into this four-bedroom apartment when I am always here alone? Do you want me to quit my job? Is that it? I want you here. Do you think this trip's dance into my hands for free anyway? Patrick, don't act as if I'm some peasant woman twiddling my thumbs waiting for you to bring me the bread. If the issue was cash, all you needed to do was tell me. Of course. How can we forget? Ayira, the chosen one, the sole heir to the... Shut your filthy mouth, you poser. What did you call me? I called you a poser, Patrick. You act like you hate being bourgeoisie and look down on people like my parents who, by the way, earned every coin they have just like me. And I didn't. Why else does money impress and intimidate you so much? Lower your voice. Or what, Patrick? And just like that, a slap. The first time, they both wept, clinging to one another on her expensive bedsheets, high in that femininely stoic way that muffled sobs into a folded tongue in a tortured pillow, him in that poetically potent way that an abuser turns into a victim. The second time, he did not weep, but she wailed. Then the second slap turned into the third, then the third became infinite. That was the way she felt, like she could not count the number of times he had slapped her. Sitting across her friend Waboy with a glass of wine in her hand, she had explained to her why she needed a house help. 
Ayira wouldn't have wanted anyone to know, particularly not Waboy, whom she looked up to and sometimes even envied, that she had skipped going through the right procedure of identifying a potential house help. She just wanted, really urgently, to have some other human presence in her house. Perhaps she had rationalized that having someone else in the house would deter Patrick from hitting her. You don't even have a cat. What do you need a live-in house help for? Asked Waboy as she sliced her tuna. Ayura was glad that the restaurant lighting was muted because she hadn't been able to find a shirt long enough to cover all her bruises. Most of her clothes were dirty. And she was tired. She had not done any laundry for two weeks. It's a big house, she said breezily. Besides, maybe a mini-me might be arriving. <laughs> Oboe's perfectly drawn eyebrow lifted as breezily as a Ayura's tone. I thought you were terrified of children. <laughs> Who knows, maybe having one will cure me of that fear. <laughs> uh, so, where are you getting this house help from? A bureau. I already found one, picking her up tomorrow. Oh my God, you know those are the kind of girls that wash the loo with your toothbrush because they hate you? Don't be so dramatic. Her phone rang. Caller ID said Patrick. She stared at the phone as if it was sprouting fangs. A boy thought she saw a hint of fear cross her friend's eyes, but then brushed off that thought. Why would Ayura be scared of the man she loved so much? Aren't you going to answer Sweetie's phone call? He must be eager to stop making those babies. Ayura's laugh was convincing. <laughs> Let him miss me a little more. It's girls' night tonight. How could she explain that his voice, the same one that used to give her tingly butterflies, had become something that she could only describe as terror? How could she tell her closest friend that her once progressive playmate had become a woman who was being pummeled like a beanbag day in, day out? How does one explain that answering that phone could not change the inevitable war waiting for her at home? Funeral committee meetings were being held at the Garden Square restaurant in Nairobi, said the obituary in the newspaper. And as if from the same outer universe, she found herself on this Friday evening, walking into the venue, camouflaged by the crowds, dark clothes, dark glasses, and a darkening spirit. From a corner, she watched his people congregate, filling the plastic chairs one by one. But she only had eyes for his wife. Her heart somehow bled for this woman who had been deceived for so long, just as she had been. How many lies had he told her while sneaking off to Kileleshwa just an hour away? Every question in her mind vanished when she saw the girl, not more than four years old and still in school uniform. She looked bewildered, clinging to her mother with a silence that was uncharacteristic of a child that age. She had her mother's eyes and her father's dimples. All she had to do was purse her lips, and there they were indented on her innocent cheeks like two crescent moons. That a man like him could have made such a wonderful being made Ayira's stomach heave. Lying in bed later that night, Ayira was in a sorry state. 
Benta found herself transformed from a servant to a savior, seeing in her madame's eyes the beginnings of the same defeat that once ailed her own mother. Benta had somehow later managed to get Ayira into the bedroom after the wailing had stopped. But after that morning, Madame had gone mute, refusing to say or do anything. So Benta shelved her plans, checking in on her Madame, whom she had come to respect every so often, offering her something to eat or drink. She even offered to call for someone, a friend, a relative, anyone. But Madame remained mute and refused to eat or drink. He was married, you know. He had a wife in this very city. They lived in Nyayo Estate, and they have a child too. All those business trips now make sense, and his parents are alive. Yet he had told me he was an orphan. <laughs> she laughed, a weak, dry escape of regret from a perched throat. I wonder whether he used to beat her as well. Mama, Chien Kikiyan. The past is never despised. Even so, I want to take a break and go back to my past. Will you come with me? M Madame, I have to go back home. Is someone sick? No. So what is it? My daughter wants to leave school. To Maria Fisaman. Ayura turned around in the bed to face Benta. The duvet hid part of her face, but Benta could still see that her eyes were almost swollen shut. How old is your daughter? She's 15. Form 1? Yes. Why does she want to leave school? She says that I'm working too hard for them. Are you? Yes. I have a small shop and a samba in the village that I rent out to anybody who wants either farm or sell goods. There's always something to fix and someone to yell at for things to happen, but I don't mind. My children did not ask to be born. It is my duty to give them the best life I can. Why didn't you ever tell me all this? You never asked, madame. I'm so sorry. It is well. God has been kind and you pay me well. Can I ask you something now? Yes. Do you have regrets? Benta sat at the edge of the bed. Nothing good ever comes from whipping yourself over the mistakes that your feet made the day before. Otherwise, I would have gone the way my mother went a long time ago. We are all human beings. Todano and Winyo. The human being is a bad. What happens when we fly the wrong way? We stop and turn, Yar Mama, and we fly back to where we are supposed to be. Why did I let this man destroy me? She was sinking back into the bed. Fear is a strong thing, my sister. It can cripple the strongest of men. You are a person who is not used to failing, and you did not want to admit that you had made a mistake in him. You loved him as well. And sometimes, when a person is in love, they hope against hope that they can change the one that they love. But you are not God, my sister. You cannot change the heart of a man. 
but you must rise from this and learn to walk again. How did you get to be so wise? Sometimes life teaches you, even if you're not ready to learn. Who's with your children? They go to boarding school. They are on midterm break now. That is why I want to go and talk to them. Where is their father? He died. Is that why you came to Nairobi? I came to Nairobi because of his brothers. They tried to inherit me and I was tired. I moved away from Siaya and took the children back to my mother's home. You married young. I had no choice, but my daughter does. Was he good to you? He was a good man and kind. He's the one who showed me how to do business. We have never spoken this long. <laughs> you are a person whose tongue has been bent, whose ears could not hear, and whose eyes only saw pain for a very long time. You are not ready to speak. Have I been a terrible boss? No, madam. <laughs> Just a sad one. Where is home? Where the children are? Muhoroni, where I was born. My parents live in Muhoroni. I know. They stared at one another for a long moment before Ayira asked her what she meant. I know your parents. What? Ayira slowly rose from the bed, supporting herself against the headboard. My mother used to work for a man who owned a big farm in Muhoroni named Ogwevi. He didn't visit very often because he was mostly in Nairobi with his family. But whenever he was around, he was very kind to us. He always gave my mother gorogoros of maize or beans or potatoes, whatever he found on the farm. His wife was also a good woman. At first I wasn't sure, but now I am. You are just like your mother. I am nothing like her. My father would never hit my mother, and if he did, she'd probably boil him in a pot. <laughs> Benta laughed, and Ayira realized that this was the first time she had ever heard her laugh. Why didn't you tell me this? This is incredible. Mrs. Ogwevi likes talking about how it is only mountains that do not meet. Ayura began to cry again. God brought us together, Jaber. We needed one another. When Mountains Meet was read to you by Chichi Say. Christine O'Deff is a writer and editor based in Kenya. And congratulations to Christine for making the shortlist for the 2018 Brittle Paper Awards alongside Kiprop Kimutai, Binya Vangawainaina, and other writers. We're happy that three of our featured writers have made it onto the 2018 shortlist. Bon chance. When Mountains Meet was selected as one of the top five winners in the Anna Soma Writing Contest, which was curated by AMCA, a space for women's creativity. And in 2016, Christine's short story, My Sister's Husband, was published in the anthology Migrations. You can find out more about Christine by visiting kenyanisa.com. When Mountains Meet was recorded at the African Voices Dubbing Company, AVDC, 
ABDC specialize in high-quality dubbing of film and television content into various African languages and dialects. To know more about their work, visit them on dubbingafrica.com. Thank you, Caroline, and your team for your support. Nipe Stories available to download wherever you get your podcasts from. Please do me a favor, write a review and rate the podcast so that others can find us easily. Spread the word about Nipe. We're constantly looking for short stories of between 750 to 4,500 words. So email your stories to producer at fingerpiano.co.ke if you'd like to submit your short story for consideration. That's how we got in touch with Christy. Follow us here on SoundCloud and on Facebook where Nipe Story and on Twitter our handle is at Nipe underscore story. Nipe Story is a Finger Piano production.